the Arthropod. The Arthropod is the home for the wonderful, weird, wacky world of insects. Hosted by Jonathan Larson, Jody Green, and Michael Scavarla. Three, two, one. Welcome back to Arthropod, your entomology podcast. I am one of your hosts for the day, Jonathan Larson of the University of Kentucky. I'm another one of your hosts. I'm Jody Green from the University of Nebraska Lincoln. And I'm the last host today, Michael Scavarla with Penn State University. We are excited to be coming back. How are you guys doing? Uh, living the dream? Having fun? Lots of bugs? Lots of bugs. Lots of bugs. Yellow-legged hornet didn't quite turn into the explosion that we had expected. Good. Mm, yeah, for the most part. I've gotten... But you have, but would you... I mean, you can't say that it's as bad as it was. Oh, no, it's like Murder Hornet light. Yes. Yes. It's the um, Michelob Ultra of Murder Hornets. <laughs> yeah, I've gotten... I probably get five or six yellow-legged hornet ID asks a week, uh, which, you know, I was getting 30 a day when when murder hornets drop so it's yeah it's there but it's not as bad it's manageable the sequels are rarely as potent as the original and you know mm. we're not supposed to call it the murder hornet i know but the northern many, giant hornet the northern giant hornet i thought about you guys yesterday i was presenting a, a check for a local middle school cross-country team Okay. And there were all these like yellow bee type things like all over the walls. And I was like, oh, okay. Are you guys like the honeybees? And they're like, no, we're the Woodrow Wilson yellow jackets. And I was like, oh, okay. So they did have some like hornet looking mascot things. And then, but all of the office uh, ladies had like the honeybee stuff. It was kind of cute. Very cute. Yeah. Yellow and, and black. and um. The really cool thing I liked was in the gym, it said, together we swarm, and it was huge, and um, it's like this. Mm. Oh, that's cool. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, it was really big. So I like it, that more than Woodrow Wilson. They should dump the Woodrow Wilson part. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't imagine that, but see, the office ladies did. Uh, oh, yeah, they've got like honeycombs and stuff. Yeah. But I was like, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of the calls I'm getting are people being stung by yellow jackets because they're cleaning up their garden or doing whatever. And the nests are going to be, um, you know, pretty large and pretty aggressive if you're next to the nest. So, you know, you don't need the yellow legged ones. You, We've got our, our, you know, garden variety yellow jackets. Our homegrown native bugs. Yeah. They'll sting you just as good. Yeah. I tell you guys, I got zapped this year. No, I, I ran over a nest with my lawnmower. It was the first time in a, probably 10 years. Ooh, I got stuck three, three times. Uh, one of them, like I ran over it. I got stung twice. I ran into the house and like started ripping off my clothes. And Sarah was like, <laughs> my wife was like, what are you doing? It's like, I got stung. And as I like, before I had a chance to get my pants off, one had got up my pants and stung me in the leg, like, as I'm ripping my shirt off. And, like, I start just flailing and slapping my leg. Uh, and she was very concerned. Um, it, I get why people get upset by it. It hurts. No, it's not a pleasant experience. No. I mean, there's, there's reasons we control them. I yeah. did dig it up and spray it. Like, it's, you know. I you got your revenge? I did. Did you do I it at night? take my advice. I did it during the day, too. What? Yeah. I know. As I, I say, better. not as I do. I know. <laughs> Sometimes I'm doing things. I'm like, don't panic. Don't panic. And then I'm like, I'm, am I panicking? Like, you know, what was it? The show when there was just like uh, bees and wasps can smell fear. I'm like, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. Like, I just tell myself, <laughs> I'm not afraid. They can't smell fear on me. I'm fine. I mean, you I've been stung a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, wait, didn't you get a weird, what was your weird comment? The Canadian thing. Oh, I, I wasn't necessarily going to broadcast that, but uh, it was a it was a very interesting call. This person, they were very much convinced that they had caught a northern giant hornet, a murder hornet, they kept calling it. And the reason was that it had stung their friend that was visiting from Canada. And this person 
kept reiterating to me how fearless and like immune to pain this Canadian was because they're a Canadian bodybuilder, Canadian motorcycle rider, Canadian rugby player. Like there were all of these at Canadian as an adjective and then uh, hobbies that they kept listing. And I was like, I, I mean, Canadians feel pain too. Like it doesn't necessarily, there's no thing in the fact sheet that's like, except if you're Canadian, then it doesn't hurt. Trust me, I'm Canadian. I do feel pain sometimes. And yes. You give (laughs) pain more than you feel it. That's, I think that's the bottom line. That's true too. That's very true. (laughs) But I thought that was pretty funny. And uh, yeah, as the resident Canadian, we do feel pain. We are human. Yeah. Contrary to reports. (laughs) Yes. Uh, so it's stinging season. If people are out there experiencing that, we can always uh, help you out. Call your local extension office and get connected with an extension specialist, and they can help you talk through how to get rid of yellow jackets and other stinging pests. Or you could just wait. I mean, they're going to okay. die, most of them here in about a month, right, Mike? Yeah, as soon as it starts getting cold. Although, looking out here, it was 91 degrees here yesterday. So, I mean, wow. the cold should be coming. I hope, fingers crossed, we'll see how long it takes to get here. I think we're having over the next 48 hours, like a 25 degree shift. Cause yeah, we've been nineties most of the first part of this week and we're heading into the high seventies here in the next few days. So yeah, we got cold weather. I'm wearing a sweater. It's sweater weather. Yeah. Well, I thought maybe the air conditioner was just on in the office. No, it dropped like 20 degrees. I love it. I mean, at night and in the morning and in the middle of the day, it's still like in the eighties. So it's like perfect. Um, but yeah, no, uh, it's great. And I think people will be very excited around here, especially for chiggers to be, uh, gone in the winter, um, when there was a cold freeze. So it was a bad year this year. Chiggers were bad this year. Uh, yellow jackets, it seems like have been bad this year. Um, we're just trying to get through all, I'm interested, I'm intrigued by the today because last time you guys were a little unhinged. I don't know if you were just more excited about insect legs then you are about our second part here where we're going to be talking about insect wings, but you seem much more like, all right, yeah, we're academics. We're here to talk about stuff. We do. Yeah. I've never, I've never been told that before. <laughs> <laughs> that you have an academic, maybe it's the sweater. It must be the sweater. <laughs> Mike constantly has an academic vibe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. yeah. It kind of oozes bad. out of you. It's bad. No, it's not bad. It's a compliment. Or it's an evaluation. It's just it's, been internalized. Yeah. <laughs> You're just made of ivory now. <laughs> That's how so, I get my alabaster skin from. <laughs> oh, Lord. No, see, there we go. We're getting a little unhinged. Uh, so the last episode was all about legs. Today, we're going to soar and take flight with wings. We're going to talk about insect wings. We've been covering insect locomotion. I wanted to share that we've gotten, I've gotten two or three emails actually over the last week of compliments on some of our basic entomology episodes, um, helping to reacquaint people with insect biology. There was somebody that was very interested by the insecticides one. So I like doing these kinds of topics. Uh, We're just going to do this deep dive into wings and talk about how utilitarian they are, how beautiful they are. And most of all, we're going to kind of focus on where they came from and why insects have them, because it's important to point out that we don't have flying lobsters, we don't have fry, flying crawdads, we don't have flying spiders. They can balloon, but they don't fly. So within the arthropods, within the invertebrates, insects are the only ones to have evolved wings. And it seems that it's a bit controversial as to how that actually happened. And I love a niche controversy like this. And so we're going to try and dive into some of those origins. And in order to do that, we're going to turn to Mike who walked us through how insect legs came into being and how insects ended up with the six legs that they have and talk about how insects uh, kind of piloted themselves to having wings. Teach us everything. Teach us, Mike. We sit at your feet. (laughs) Uh, It's funny that you say I come off as an academic because uh, I did teach exactly this during my insect taxonomy class in 2020. So to reacquaint myself with everything, because it's been a few years, I pulled up my old teaching PowerPoints to like get me back into remembering all of this and making sure I've got all my I's dotted and T's crossed. So uh, I hope it's not too academic right now. I want to make it exciting. Um, I think this is really exciting. So 
there's basically th three or four, depending on how you count them, uh, major hypotheses about how wings developed in insects. Okay. Um, the first I want to cover is, and just quickly, is the epicoxal hypothesis. So this one was first proposed in 1870, and it suggests that wings evolved from gills on aquatic insects, uh, such as the naiads of mayflies, and that those gills somehow moved from being associated with the legs, kind of moved up the sides of the body, and then from there were like extended out and hardened and became wings. And there's a couple things that support this idea or that are are you know kind of evidence that would support it uh one is that the gills often have little like winglets these little flaps that can move water against the gills to keep oxygen flowing okay and that those little winglets are musculated so there's already a muscle associated with that area so um, the the gills can move they can wiggle is what you're saying and so yeah. somebody is saying that's the start of being able to beat wings so you can take off Right. Like you've already got this flap there. It's musculated. So you just got to like move that up and then expand it into a wing. Uh, the big problem with this hypothesis is that then if wings are coming from aquatic insects, then that means you've got two invasions of land by insects. So you've got the primitively wingless insects like jumping bristle tails uh, in, in uh, Zygentoma. What's the things that get in your silverfish uh you both should know silverfish if so you like said they, something about minecraft i would have gotten it <laughs> so like they would have come up on land and then you have this secondary invasion of winged insects that are derived from these aquatic insects um getting transitioning from land to water and water to land is hard and so that kind of suggests that maybe this isn't the easiest or the best hypothesis like there's evidence for it but um it's pretty much not accepted at this point that that is kind of where wings came from can i ask um, what might be kind of a remedial question on this front yeah aren't gills in the wrong place for them to become wings like aren't they abdominal appendages by and large it depends on the group that you're looking at okay okay uh so some groups do have abdominal gills and those are kind of extensions of the trachea that are inside the body so you can imagine you've got this internal system of tubes and you just make some of that an external system of tubes that are in contact with the water and can let oxygen pass through the cuticle other groups have and particularly some mayfly naiads have gill in stoneflies have gills that are associated with the leg bases okay and so you've got three sets of gills right around the base of the coxy on the legs. And so they're already kind of in place. You just have to move them from below the legs, kind of around the thorax and up on top of the thorax. So this is where epicoxal comes from. Though. Yes, because gotcha. they're kind of associated with or derived. I don't, uh, maybe I shouldn't say that. I'm not sure if they're derived from the coxy. I guess I, I don't know what the the origin of leg associated gills is. Probably should have looked that up. No, I, I think that you're doing um, a fine job. Uh, I, I just was trying to think of this as the piecemeal kind of thing you talked about in the last episode of segmentation. And there's got to be something on the segment to become adapted to become these things. So in my head, I think of gills as being kind of at the tip of the abdomen. But now I understand. Like butt breathers. Yeah, butt breathers. Which You can always count on which... Jody and I for some... <laughs> Which would, be which, <laughs> which would be which insects? Oh, I mean, I thought it was pretty fascinating learning that, you know, the aquatic naiads, like, breathe out of their butt. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's the epicoxal hypothesis. And it's, again, I just want to cover it briefly because it is out there. It has been proposed. It's not well supported for a number of reasons. Uh, the next hypothesis is the paranodal hypothesis, and this is an idea that you have the paranotum. So we're going to break that word down. You have the notum, which is kind of the top part of the insect thorax. Um, if you imagine something like a beetle, the pronotum is that big segment behind the head. So the notum is just the top segments of the thorax. The para is on the side, so the paranotum would be the sides of the top 
of the thorax. And the paranoidal hypothesis is that you take these sides of the top of the thorax, which is where the wings are, expand them out into large flaps, and then somehow articulate them and musculate them so that they can move. Um, and again, there's some evidence for this. So primitively wingless insects like jumping bristletails do have extensions of the noda at the or the paranoda. Um, so there are groups that don't have wings where these things are extended out. And you could imagine like, okay, we just make them bigger. The problem with this hypothesis is, okay, you've made these paranoda big. You've got big flaps. How do you then articulate them? How do you make a move? And how do you musculate them? How do you get a muscle there to, to make the articulated thing move? The other hypothesis then is the endite-excite hypothesis, uh, sometimes known as the pleural coxal hypothesis. And so this is a hypothesis that you have endites and excites, which are associated with the legs. They're part of the, um, the arthropod leg. Uh, they've gotten rid of in, in insect groups, but things like crustaceans have uh, both endites and excites. And you take those parts of the legs that are already articulated, move them up the sides of the thorax, kind of like with the gill hypothesis, get them on top of the thorax and then expand them out. Now you've got this expansion that was derived from leg material. It's articulated, it's musculated. Uh, somehow you make a leg into a wing. Um, and then the last hypothesis is called the dual hypothesis. This is basically, why not both of these? So it's a combination of the paranoidal hypothesis, you've got extensions of the paranoidal, and the endite excite hypothesis, you bring some of these leg elements up. And somehow both of these things are interacting. You bring leg parts up, you expand the, the noda as well, and it's kind of both. Uh, and so both schools of thought have kind of been battling in the literature, like, oh, no, it's it's the paranoda, it's endidexite. Uh, and there are, if you just look at morphology, uh, there are reasons to argue for either or. Uh, so it's not real clear just based on morphology, like what's going on uh, in one other problem we have is this time in the fossil record, there are very few good fossils. So you basically have fossils of non-winged insects, an 80 million year gap, and then multiple lineages, like 10 lineages that are winged. And so all like when you get wings in the fossil record, everything's have really well-developed wings. And we have this gap of like no intermediate forms. And it's just a kind of that's just the way the fossil record is some places you don't have good preservation for whatever reason so we don't have good fossils to like push one way or the other and support these morphological hypotheses so both of these ideas are kind of bouncing around in the literature uh support for both and then similar to what happened with the legs we introduce genetic techniques to this and when you start looking genetic techniques really start to support the endite excite hypothesis because if you look at the genes that are associated with wing growth and development, they're the same kind of uh, gene groups that are associated with leg development. So you've basically taken these genes, duplicated them, changed them because they're now, you know, wings. Like once you get them in place in the genome, you can start tinkering with them, letting mutations kind of change what they're doing. And so that really, 10, 20 years ago, started supporting this endite excite hypothesis. Then in 2015, let me check my notes, uh, 2016, there was a really good fossil nymph of a paleodictyopteran. So paleodictyoptera is this extinct group of insects. They have developed wings uh, on the meso and metathoracic segments, so the second and third thoracic segments, they also have these little winglets on the prothorax. So they've got three kind of sets of wings. 
And this really well-preserved nymph has the back half of these wings has venation, like you would see on a standard wing, but the front half of the wing is this big block of cuticle that attaches directly to the uh, paranoda. And so this fossil is suggesting like maybe it is this dual hypothesis. We've got these leg elements that are coming up, forming the articulation, forming the veined part of the wings, but you also have this expansion of the paranoda that is also going on with the wings and being kind of the front part of the wings. And so now the evidence is leaning more towards this dual hypothesis. So, you know, wings are derived from like material, but you've also got some of the paranoia in there. And there's some other things that are going on. So you can imagine insects have three pairs of legs, paleodictyoptera have three sets of wings. So once you get the, the kind of leg parts moving up, being incorporated and developed into these wings, you've got to have things like reduction of the pronotal wing pair. And that happens pretty early on. Outside of paleodictyoptera, no living insect groups, including the paleoptera, the, the old wing insects, dragonflies mm -hmm. uh, and such, none of them have pronotal wings. And then once you're reduced down to two pairs of wings, you have to decouple the gene groups that are associated with the middle and hind pair of wings so that you can do different things with them. Uh, and then that happens. Like once you've got your gene duplications happening, you can disassociate them pretty easily. And then you can do interesting things like make your front pair of wings look different and do different things than your hind pair of wings. Um, and I think that's a good way to kind of lead off into what the different wings are and different wing functions. But does that does that kind of make sense what the different hypotheses are and kind of where we're at with understanding? Yes, the... absolutely. Uh, I think that the part where you were hitting on why there are four wings or two pairs of wings was important because we always joke with insects, three is the magic number, right? They have three pairs of this, three of that. Uh, with wings, it's a little confusing because there's two, but you're saying that maybe in, in ye old ancient times, there was another set on the pronotum. There was, but as far as we can tell, it was always small. Right. Um, and I think this will this ties into some of the things we'll talk about with wings, about why, you know, associated with wing and wings in flight, like why one set of wings is always better or almost always better than two sets of wings and three sets of wings is always bad. Never seen a plane with that. So that just reminded me whenever I'm walking on a trail and I'm always see, when I see three people walking in like a row together or not in a row across, I'm like three across is bad. Three is bad. Three across is bad when you say that. But I like the name. Um, I like the word winglet. It's really cute. Yeah, right. Little that winglets. Was, that was Paul McCartney's band, right? Little winglets. So do we talk about why some insects? Well, I mean, there's exceptions to every rule. So yeah, kick us off. You know, everybody that, always wants to know, well, how come this? How come this? How come think like can insects not have wings? And so so many, so many rules, so many insects that are flightless, but some of them are just don't have wings at certain stages of their life. So I think that's the other thing we have to also specify is that most insects that have, or all insects that have wings are going to have wings when they're adults, right? Is that true? Like if an insect has wings, that means they're an adult. Um, but then there are the same, some orders of insects that don't have wings at all. Then there are some in the same order that have wings some of the time. Then there are some that have wings at different stages in their lives depending on what their life cycle is. And one of you guys is an aphid expert. And so that's what I think about, like how sometimes they have wings. And then when there's overcrowded, that's when they'll have wings. And then otherwise they don't need wings. And then some insects, the males have wings, but they're rarely seen. So how do you know they have wings? So many questions for you, Mike. So, okay. So part of what you're getting at is the difference between primitively wingless insects and then the pterygoats. So primitively, and I hate the word primitively, but that's kind of what it is. The apterygoats, 
Uh, and that's the group of insects that kind of split off from all other insects before the evolution of wings. So you can imagine like the original insect that crawled up on land doesn't have wings. You've got these couple groups like jumping bristletails and silverfish that split off the evolutionary tree before wings evolved. And so they never had wings, never in their evolutionary history. They um, can't ever develop wings because they just never evolved in those groups. Okay. So you've got the primitively uh, wingless insects on one side and then the pterogotes, the winged insects on the other. Within pterogotes, you've got the um, paleoptera, the old wings. Uh, so things like dragonflies and mayflies. And these are the primitively winged insects. Again, I hate the word primitively, but it kind of gets the idea across. These are kind of the outside of paleodictyoptera, the the group of insects that have the least modified wings. They split off of winged insects on one side. You've got all other winged insects on the other of the evolutionary tree. Um, and they have the least modifications to their wings. So you think about dragonflies. They have big wings. The front wings and the hind wings look more or less the same. Lots of veins throughout the wings. The wings can't fold over the body. So you think about something like a beetle or a wasp where they can fold their wings back over the abdomen. Dragonflies can't do that and have never been able to do that. Same with mayflies. They can fold their wings up, but they can't kind of fold flat over the abdomen. And you can imagine that being able to fold your wings flat over your abdomen opens up all kinds of things. Like a dragonfly can't crawl through the soil because it would tear its wings apart. So by able by being able to fold your wings up, that opens up a whole slew of niches that you couldn't that dragonflies, for example, can't access. It also offers things like protection. You can crawl into these places and not tear your wings to shreds. Um, so, so the the insects that have adopted flightlessness or have evolved to not have wings, they are probably in habitats in places where they don't need wings. And so it wasn't an advantage. So right. when it comes to like all like lice do not have wings right. and fleas. Right. So then you've, yeah. So you've got then kind of all other winged insects. They all have the capability of having wings. Like the ancestor, all, all these groups had wings. And so there's, the evolutionary possibility that they would have had wings. But you've got different groups like lice, like fleas, like a number of female wasps that live in soil and leaf litter. Insects that get into these places where wings aren't advantageous. And wings are costly. Like it costs a lot of energy to build them. And so if you don't need wings, if they're just going to get tore up or keep you from accessing the habitat you, that you need to get into, or in the case of like a ectoparasite, you know, yeah. give something that you're riding on something to grab onto and pull you off, like a louse. It's more advantageous to get rid of those wings, even though they increase things like dispersibility, because you don't need them in the habitats that you're getting into. And certain groups get around this in different ways. So there are things like velvet ants, mutilids, where the females are wingless because they're the the sex that is going after prey they're getting into tight spaces going after concealed prey in wood and in soil uh the males are winged because they need the ability to disperse to get to those females to find them to mate with them they're not going after prey so they don't need to get into these tight spaces that the females get into some velvet ants have taken this another step where while they're mating the male is twice the size of the female and will fly around with the female. Uh, and so that allows females that are ordinarily wingless to disperse because the males are carrying them. So there's ways to get around the winglessness. But yeah, in groups that have wings ancestrally, that's the word I wanted, they've secondarily lost wings a multiple multiple times, usually because of things like habitat where they're getting into size smaller insects tend to lose wings really big insects sometimes lose wings think about like flightless katydids because they're too big to fly so you don't need them mm -hmm. things on mountaintops are often wingless because you can imagine like in a really windy kind of 
mountainous area where there is no cover, you don't want to have wings that can get caught by the wind and blow you out of your habitat. So things on mountains tend to be flightless as well. Things on islands are often flightless for the same reason. You don't get, don't want to get blown into the ocean. So yeah, flightlessness can evolve fairly easily. You just kind of stop the genes that are responsible for making wings. And then we've got like reproductive insects that have wings. So like the social insects like ants and termites, the workers don't have wings, but they need the wings to reproduce because that's their way of finding each other, mating, and then again, dispersing to try to increase um, population. And then they lose their wings afterward. And so there must be some kind of trade-off when it comes to like egg production and the eggs that you said were so costly. So when a lot of female reproductives or queens are producing all the eggs that they can, they don't have wings anymore. They don't need it for what they're doing. So, um, and then the, the aphids, I guess, if they're parthenogenic and can reproduce like clones of themselves or not have to, you know, have their eggs fertilized or have to leave, then they probably don't, don't need wings either. I have a question about non-insect hexapods. Are mm-hmm. they non-insect hexapods because they don't, because of their mouth parts and because of they lack wings? Yeah. So they're, they're wingless for the same reason that apterogotes are wingless. You can imagine if you've got the hexapod tree of life, non-insect hexapods split off, and then you've got insects, non-winged insects split off, and then you've got the winged insects that are left. So they're, they're, Flightless and wingless for the same reason that that apterogote, the primitively ancestrally flightless insects are flightless. Um, they just diverged before wings developed. Yeah, I guess um, I didn't know that we had non-insect hexapods. Like, yes, you know, springtails. Yeah, very common. Um, I think also we should mention that like the orders that we have or the names that aptera right mm-hmm. so like is it the p and the terra means wings so yep. a lot of the times when you see like the order or names if it's got that in it it's a type of winged insect but if it's got the a aptera then it's the absence of wings mm-hmm. yeah so you've got two broad groups of insects the aptera goats the primitively ancestrally wingless insects and the terra goats uh the ancestrally winged insects uh, you mentioned one other thing that I wanted to bring back around that only adult insects have wings. There's a lot to get into with that, but I did want to mention that is another reason that the gill hypothesis is difficult to reconcile because gills occur in immature insects. So you've got to have somehow like these gills from the immatures then turning into wings that somehow only pop up in the adults when adult insects don't have wings. So that's another strike against that that hypothesis. And some of the modern insects that don't have wings, like I, I'm, you know, I'm a fan of or bed bugs is what I talk about all the time. So bed bugs and bat bugs, they've got those wing pads. So mm-hmm. did did they used to have wings or are they just vestigial wings? Like they just are reduced. Yeah, you could think of them like kind of like vestigial wings. That's where the wing would be if they had wings, but they being ectoparasites have evolved to get rid of the wings. And so the wing has just turned into this pad that's on the top of the the kind of thorax abdomen area. Gosh, imagine if they could fly. That'd be so bad. It'd be terrible. <laughs> be a way worse world. Uh, welcome to Monster. AM Radio. Today we're monitoring the flight of the bed bugs coming down from Louisville, Kentucky to Lexington. Oh, jeez. Yeah, it would be. It'd yeah, be it would be bad. It would be bad. Jonathan, do you have things to add? I just was enjoying your your conversation. Uh, do we want to talk a little bit about how insect wings appear, like how they look? They, they're kind of pretty in their own way. Sure. I think one of the things that non-entomologists are often surprised by is wing diversity. So I mentioned things like 
the Odinates, the dragonflies, and the damselflies, where they've got these big membranous wings. The four wings look like the hind wings. You've got other groups where both sets of wings are membranous, things like wasps and hornets, lace wings. Uh, but then you've got other groups where they do really wild stuff with their wings. So if you think about beetles, they've got these kind of membranous hind wings that they use for flight. But then the cover of the beetle, the elytra, that hard bit on the back half of the insect, that is a modified forewing. They've taken a wing that ancestrally would have been membranous, like in dragonflies and damselflies, and just stiffened it up. We call it sclerotized it, made it really hard, and used it now instead of for flight, it is used as a protective organ. I guess, for lack of a better word, a protective thing over the hind wings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so that is those elytra, those hard covers that those are wings. Those are the four wings. And they've used them for protection. So now the only wings that they use for flight are the hind wings that are usually tucked up under those hardened four wings. True bugs. Sorry. Can I go? Can I bounce off the beetle? But like, I. I think that it's a beautiful and elegant thing with beetles. I, I know we're weird bug people, but like to think of the fact that they have this hardened shell, which is often brightly colored, very vibrant, um, very visual to us. It, it sort of looks like their shell. It looks like their helmet. You think of a lady beetle. Um, that's the thing that's very characteristic for most people. They recognize the elytra. But not only that, but the folding of the of the back wing up under that, it seems very elegant i i keep using that word but like the origami style way that they have to tuck it up under there and then unfurl it i think of something even like a rove beetle i mean that's such a shortened elytra on top of the rove beetle and they still pack their wings up under there how how would an insect accomplish that mike like what is it that allows them to be able to fold those those back wings like that sure so there are multiple evolutionary steps involved And I kind of mentioned it before, but if you think about something like a dragonfly that can't fold its wings at all, it can flap them up and down and that's it. So the first thing you've got to do is be able to fold your wings over your abdomen. And so you can think about something like a cockroach or mantises that can do that. Their wings, instead of being flat out like a dragonfly, they can now fold those wings back over the abdomen. And that really helps, again, with protection because you can get into places and not worry about ripping your wings up. Once you've got that step, now you've got to do something with your forewings. So beetles have hardened them. True bugs have also hardened them, not quite as hard as beetles, but they're kind of hard and leathery. Other groups of insects have done other things with their forewings. But now that you've got them folded over the abdomen, you've got to be able to fold them kind of again, or maybe a third time. And so there's multiple steps where you've got to kind of evolve different folding mechanisms into your wing to tuck them up under those elytra. And all of these folds happen typically along the veins. So you've got like a break in the vein or a soft spot that now you can kind of lip the membranous parts of your wings different different ways. Vespid wasps are another really good example of, of insects that can fold their wings. If you look at a wasp, when it's kind of sitting there, the wings look really long and thin. And that's because instead of folding their wings like beetles with origami, they've taken their wings kind of long ways and folded them over on each other. So they look really long and narrow. But as soon as they go to fly, they kind of flip those wings open. And again, that's for protection because when they're feeding larvae, when they're cleaning out the nest, they're going into these cells And you don't want your wings to be really big when you're going into a cell. You want to be able to fold them over your abdomen so you can get as narrow as you can to get into that cell. Uh, And even with that, by the end of the season, the oldest workers, their wings are really beat up and starting to shred. But you can imagine if their wings were not able to fold, they would be even worse uh, and lose the capability of flight even faster. You know what this reminds me of? So Jonathan just sent us some videos of like, uh, lady beetles like spreading the elytra and usually people know a beetle because it's got that line down the back because that's where the elytra kind of crack open and then these wings kind of unfold but it reminds me of like do you have any of those things that like pop up like laundry baskets or 
um, dashboard, like, you know, things that are, I don't know that fabric with those bendy wires and that you just yeah. like tense kid tense, you know, you're like yeah. folding it and it just like pops out and hits you in the face. That's what it reminds me of because you cannot imagine like something so large and having so much surface area be folded up into such a small place and then just like, Pew! bye. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I can bounce off of that because that's kind of what I was going to say is when I see a beetle in action, the wings coming out never surprises me. Like I, I understand that it's how they get them back under, like the refolding of the parachute and stuffing it back in kind of part of it is the part that I find the most fascinating of like how they would tuck that back up under there. It's exactly as hard as trying to get that tent back to that exactly. little, like that kid tent back in the, the little bag. bug right? tent or the net that you have that does the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And when you watch it in slow motion, it's actually like, you know, like it looks kind of painful when they're trying to like, come on. You're like, come on, get off the ground, you know, or get off the leaf. And they're just like. Arr. It's nice to hear you guys talk about that because like I just don't think about it just like oh yeah they flip them in and flip them out but it's nice to like get that little bit of wonder back yeah i think this is the a wondrous piece of insects uh looking at the wings they're they're so interesting feeling and looking like they're just such a unique little piece of the world that i think is underappreciated so we were talking about beetles and their wings. You talked about the elytra. You were about to take us into hemiptera and talk about their wings. But did we talk about, did we mention about, well, we I don't know. We always talk about how, the how many wings and where. We talked about the body parts. So like the winglets that are no longer there on the prothorax, but with the, the maso and metathorax. Mm-hmm. So it's like the second, the middle part of the thorax and this third part of the thorax is where the wings are going to to be on most of the insects that have wings except for the insect that has one pair of wings well right? the, the wings are still there too um right so, modified yeah so i think that is a good jump i was going to mention hemiptera but i think i'm going to back up a little bit we've talked about wing modifications and i want to get back to that But I think one thing to lay out is that it is much easier to fly with one set of wings than it is with two sets of wings. So dragonflies have four wings, two pairs of wings, and they can move independently. And they are some of the most acrobatic and aerial insects that you have out there. They have direct flight muscles. So there are muscles that are directly attached to those wings and they can move all four of them independently. That is energetically really costly. And so once you get outside of dragonflies, most insects have what are called indirect flight muscles. So instead of having the muscles attaching to the wings, you've got the muscles attaching to the thorax. So you can imagine the thorax is is like a box like, I don't know why I'm showing you guys with my hands. They, the listeners can't see this. Um, but you can imagine the thorax is a box. And if you have the muscles attached to the box, the top of the thorax, they can contract and pull that box down. And that flips the wing up. And then when those muscles relax, the box kind of regains its shape and the wings flip down. And the thing about indirect flight muscles like that is if, depending on the group that you're looking at, uh, you can get your wings to beat faster than you would get more wing repetitions in than you would with direct flight muscles. So if you squeeze that thorax box once, you can get three, four, five wing beats out of it instead of out of one muscle contraction, instead of having to pull that muscle four or five times. And so it's more efficient to have indirect flight muscles. The problem with indirect flight muscles is that now you've got four wings that are kind of flapping all over the place. And so you want to reduce your number of wings from four down to two. And so how do you do that? All insect groups have done it somehow. Some groups like butterflies and uh, hymenoptera, the bees and wasps and and things, uh, have different coupling mechanisms. So they will couple their four wings to their hind wings. So now instead of four pairs of wings, you functionally have two pairs of wings because the wings are coupled. The front wing moves and the back wing moves. And 
that's one way to get around it. You keep your four wings, you have a bigger surface area for flight, but you couple them in a way that makes them move dependently upon each other. They're not independent movement. They don't have an independent movement. The other way is to modify one of your pairs of wings to do something else and functionally just have one pair of flying wings. So beetles have done it. They have elytra that are hardened that aren't flight wings. They're protective coverings that protect the hind wings that are the flying wings. Orthopterans have done the same thing. They have leathery forewings that aren't used for flight. They're used for protection and the hind wings are used for flight. Hemiptera have done the same things. They have leathery forewings that aren't used for flight and the hind wings are used for flight. Other groups like flies just get rid of a wing pair altogether. So in flies, they've kept the forewings and the hind wings are reduced to what are called halteres. They're these little kind of ball on a stick and they're basically little tiny gyroscopes. They move these halteres around and that helps them balance. That's the reason that flies are such good flyers. They're using those halteres to figure out where they are in relation to like the world around them. They're, they're gyroscopes, but they only have one pair of flight wings. Another group that has gotten rid of one pair of wings altogether is Strepsiptera. Um, it's a group that we don't really talk about on here. The males are winged. The females are parasitic, uh, tip, uh, often in grasshoppers and orthopterans and bees and wasps. They have the hind wings as their flight wings, and then the fore wings are modified into halteres. So they're kind of the opposite of, of true flies. Have um, to be different. Have to be different. Punks, uh, rebels. Is there, are there any other groups that I'm missing? I can't, I don't think so. No, I don't um, know. I, I have a chart of all the different kind of <laughs> wings and like what they mean and things like that. I've never seen Strepsiptra. They seem males. very cool. So Strepsiptra means twisted wing. And aren't they in the, in the abdomen folds of wasps? Yeah, the easiest way to find the find them, uh, both immatures and females, is to find a paper wasp and just look at the abdomens, and you'll see them poking out from the tergites. The males don't feed, are very small, and are short-lived, and so you pick them up in pan traps occasionally, but otherwise, like, you don't really see them. I would love to, they're, they're not, they're common in that they're all over the place, because most, especially paper wasps, are infected. Uh, but they're uncommon because they're so short-lived, you just never see them. What do they do there? They're 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 endoparasites. So are they feeding off them? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Bugs on bugs. Bugs on bugs. Ad infinitum. Oh. Did you talk about like Thysanoptera? Fringe winged, the thrips? Oh, yeah, the thrips. So they've got four pairs of wings too, and they I you know, I don't know if they couple them. I think there's a jugal. Is that what it is? Jugal coupling, right? Yeah. And and I guess that's the other thing to say is there are lots of different coupling mechanisms, even within the same groups of insects. So moths couple their wings different from butterflies. Bees sometimes have, or some hymenoptera have a jugal lobe. So it's a big lobe that extends from the hind wing over, or the, the forewing over the hind wing and acts as a coupling mechanism. The other hymenoptera have hamuli, which are little hooks on the wings that like act like Velcro to stick the wings together. So there is a diversity of wing coupling mechanisms. And I guess kind of the final point of all of that is if you're an insect that's not a dragonfly, you want to have one pair of flight wings. How do you do that? Well, there's lots of different ways. You either get rid of a pair of wings, you make you modify a pair to do something that isn't flying, or you couple your wings together with a variety of different mechanisms so that you functionally have one instead of two pairs. Uh, and that all is because of direct versus indirect flight muscles. I wanted to take one pause here. Uh, we're going to shift. We don't have ads on the show, but we do have a bit of a plug for friend of the show, Crystal Hans upcoming cold cases symposium. That's going to be at Purdue university. So we're going to hear from her and uh, about that event. And then we will come back and finish off insect wings. Every year, thousands of people are murdered or go missing in the United States, compounding the number of unsolved cases and for the families still searching for answers. The annual Cold Case Symposium 
provides families with a platform to share their loved one's case in a safe environment, aligning resources and mobilizing support. Amidst the uncertainty, there is hope in action. Presenting the 2023 Cold Case Symposium, a gathering of hearts and minds determined to make a difference. Hosted by Purdue University and Project Cold Case, it is a place for families, students, law enforcement, and community members to learn about resources and how they can support the victims and survivors. Join us as we bring together victim advocates, law enforcement professionals, cold case detectives, and survivors, each contributing their unique perspective and lived experience. This symposium is open to all, families, advocates, students, academics, law enforcement, and community members who want to show their support, raise awareness, and discover the available resources. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at case underscore symposium for updates and insights leading up to the event. And join us on Thursday, October 12th, 2023 in West Lafayette at Purdue University's Purdue Memorial Union for the Cold Case Symposium. Real stories. Real support. Real Real resources. resources. All right, so we are going to be kind of concluding with the wings here. One thing that I don't know that we've hit on, Mike, and this would be something that is, again, up your alley, is we haven't talked necessarily (laughs) about the venation of wings. Uh, When you look at an insect's wing, it looks like it's filled with these tubes or with these veins in there. Um, Are they true veins? Is there fluid in there? What is the purpose of these veins? And then maybe we can shift after that into talking about how you used veins in your day-to-day job. Sure. So wing vein, the wings are like alive, I guess. There is hemolymph that goes into the veins and keeps them kind of oxygenated and supple. You can imagine if the wings were like hair and dead, they would dry out and you wouldn't be able to fold them up or do anything with them. Now that you've got me on the spot, I'm not entirely sure what wing veins are derived from. Uh, and now that's I okay. I don't know. That that, I, yeah, that wasn't what I was interested in so much as like um, just pointing out that they need the veins. They right? need the veins. They need them for yeah. the, the strength of the yeah. wings. Yeah. So if you imagine like a piece of paper, you can't just flap a piece of paper. It's going to get all floppy on you. And so the veins are there. They're little tubes in the wings that are acting as girders to strengthen and stiffen those wings against the kind of mechanical resistances of flight through air. I was going to say lattice work, but I really like girder. I think girder is the better way of describing it. Yeah. I might steal um, that from you. Yeah. Uh, and that's a, that's a reason that really large, or not really large, but most insects have veins. The smaller you get, you can reduce your venation. So like very small wasps have taken the lots, the many veins that bigger insects have and kind of reduced those. They've either lost veins or combined veins. So they have reduced venation because their wings are smaller and they don't need as much strength and rigidity there. And then you get to something like a thrips, which are all very small. They don't have any venation in the wings and they've reduced their wings down to these kind of, I don't know, elongate structures that are fringed in hair because it is better for them at that tiny size, getting through the air to have these, these fringes instead of like a big membranous structure. Um, so wings can do different things and are altered depending on the size of the insect. And because insects are often living at such small scales, they you can kind of think of like the physics kind of they're the same, but they change because you're so small bodied. You can get away with moving through the air differently than like bigger animals and bigger insects. And all those veins have names and where they are and they can be branched or not branched. And I mean, I... I don't have the kind of microscopes you do have that you have, Mike. So it, to me, it's just like, okay, I look at certain wing veins to narrow it down to maybe like some families, but otherwise, like I can't tell. But a lot of the small flies, that's how I identify them by wing venation. So it's very helpful. The other day I found like a a wasp with a pretty long ovipositor inside. So I knew it was like a ichneumon or braconid. And that's like there's something about the veins that are in there that you look at to tell the difference, right? Yes, the first and second recurrent, the, the presence of a second recurrent vein. I call uh, it a horse head. 
Um, yeah, so you're hitting on the the importance of wing veins in in systematics and morphology. Um, so the veins in insect wings evolve like any other part of the insect. And if you look across typically insect families, they will have kind of a, a standard venation that then gets played with. And so you think of something like a dragonfly, and I keep going to them because they're kind of the, the first offshoot of winged insects. If you think about a dragonfly wing, it is full of veins and cross veins, and it looks like a reticulated leaf, I guess. I can't think of a better thing. It looks like netting. As you get into more derived insects, uh, you start to lose a lot of those cross veins because you don't need them for the rigidity in the wings. You also start to reduce the number of long veins in the wings, so veins will get uh, combined or or gotten away with altogether. And each one of those veins have names. So you've got, oh gosh, I should have had a thing of this up, like the costa and the costa. subcosta. Oh, you want radius. me to go through it? Yeah. yeah, you're good. You're good. Okay, what's the next uh, the radius, one? Radius, the cubitus. Nope, media. No. Media. Yep cubitus and then anal veins yes um and so each one of those veins have different names and depending on how they branch the branches have different names so you've got like media one media two it could be one plus two because that vein is combined in a certain insect but looking at how the veins are laid out what veins are present what cross veins there are where the branching happens all of that can be diagnostic for identification because different families again kind of have a, a often have this the a basic uh bow plan is that the word i'm looking for like ancestrally they'll have like a pattern that their wing looks like and then different groups in that family can derive the wings different ways but they'll typically look more similar to each other than insects that are in different families and in less related so looking at wing venation is really important for things like identification, morphology, systematics, uh, and that kind of thing. What's your favorite winged insect? What's my favorite winged insect? Yes. And why? Or my favorite insect wing? Yeah. Um, when I ate cicada wings, I thought they were pretty delicious. It was like that Wait. sort of cellophane soybean wrap that you get on different foods. Weird. That's interesting. <laughs> when did you eat that? Uh, during the Brood X emergence, there was a an opportunity to eat some some professionally prepared cicadas here. Hmm. I feel like saying, "What's your favorite winged insect?" is is akin to saying, "What is your favorite insect?" Because you're not eliminating very many groups. Yeah, and I don't think most people are going to say jumping bristletails. Yeah. Fire okay. Rats. So then, what is like? What wings do you admire? I mean, surfid flies, also called hoverflies, they are like, I mean, I guess I don't really look closely at their wings, but what they can do and their movement and their way they hover and just, I mean, they're very cool. So if we're going to go that way, I think some of my favorite wings would have to be Ulidid wings. So Ulidids, that's one. That is a fun family name to say. Ulidiidae. Hey, what Ulidids. is Ulidids? What are Ulidids? So they're the picture wing flies. Oh, yes. And you think about most flies like a house fly. They land and they fold their wings over their back and they walk around. Picture wing flies walk around and they kind of take their wings and move them around. Like not they're not flat on the back. They hold their wings up in kind of vertical and out to the sides and they, they move them around and they're often patterned. So they'll have like brown striping or brown spots all over the wings, which is why they're called picture wing flies, sometimes signal wing flies. One that's really common, at least here in the Eastern US is Delphinia picta. We have that too. It looks like they're wearing like gas masks. Yeah, because, yeah, they're really cool. And, like, we get them on our deck, the, the larvae breeding compost. So people that have compost will, like, find them on their houses sometimes. And they're really, like, they'll let you look at them before they fly away. Like, you can get pretty close. 
I think, yeah, Ulidids and, and other related fly groups, I think, are maybe my favorite because they're doing like weird stuff with their wings. Like the thrips do that. They do like that flicking kind of mesmerizing stuff with their wings. Do they? I guess I haven't really watched thrips. Yeah. I have to just, I took a video once through the uh, microscope and it like they just they flick their wings. They're very interesting. For thrips anyway. Ooh. You know what another cool one is? There's different fruit flies to frittids that mimic jumping spiders with their wings. So they'll flip their wings up. And if you look at it, the pattern looks like there's lots of species that do this, but it looks like a spider with eyes and then the legs. And it's thought that they're they're just directly mimicking jumping spiders because jumping spiders are visual predators. They see this fly and it's like, oh, shoot, that's another jumping spider. I don't think I want to predate it. And it gives the fly a chance to fly away. So that's a really kind yeah, of that is cool. wing system as well. And I think a lot of people know like hummingbird moths. They, they're always mesmerized by them because they're so big. And they originally think they're hummingbirds, but they turn out to be a moth. Just because they can beat their wings so fast. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to even photograph. Yeah, and hover like yep. above the flowers and things like that. So, John, do you have do you have a favorite wing now that we've got the ball rolling? Uh, I'm. I guess I'm. I would say I'm partial to the dragonflies and damselflies. I know that they're unique with their direct flight muscles, but I like when you can watch them in slow motion or in videos, and you can see each wing. Uh, set sort of moving independently of each other and the fact that that allows them to turn kind of on a dime and chase down a mosquito uh, i find that pretty fascinating they're very fast even though they don't beat their wings nearly as quickly as other insects right like a dragonfly we're talking in the 25 to 30 beats per second range whereas can't some wasps get up to like almost a thousand wing beats a second or something bizarre. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, that's the difference between direct, that great example of the difference between direct and indirect flight muscles. Um, and That's a good one too, because we always think about like, Oh, dragonflies, they're primitive and, you know, other insects or have indirect flight muscles. They're doing it better. And it's like, well, no dragonfly wings are doing exactly what they need to do like there's a reason they're still here and unmodified right. like they they hit upon a thing that works for them and they, they nailed it never, yeah they, they nailed, nailed it, it first try like it works great um it is it's not that it's primitive it's just that they haven't had to change it different wing strokes for different folks <laughs> Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this kind of casual look at locomotion with insects. We started with legs, since all insects uh, have got those. Ended with wings, since it's a little more specialized. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground. You basically, what what did they get here over the last two episodes, Mike? Like two or three weeks of Int 303 uh, sort of digested down into two hours? Yeah, I mean, this is a lot of kind of, this is what you would get in a lot of graduate classes at least intro oh, so 503 not, yeah. not 30 i mean i covered insect wings in the evolution of flight as an entire half a lecture uh when i taught so and it is an interesting topic just because insects are the only ones that have this adaptation um it's allowed them i would argue to be as as they are uh in comparison to some of the other invertebrates is that fair to say mike oh for sure wings yeah. allow you wings themselves in the increased uh dispersal that you can get like that that is important in and of itself but now you've got these structures like legs that you can modify into elytra into protective structures into halteres and other things like the evolution of wings not only is important for movement but so many other things that derive from the wings um and allow all kinds of different niche ex- exploitation so yeah, the development of wings is hugely important for the success of insects. Jody, I don't, did did you respond to what is your favorite? Probably not, but I don't have a favorite. Oh, well, I talked about the hoverflies, but I don't know if that's... I, I just like things that 
can like just be around like not like I like when they can just hover hover there so I do like dragonflies I do like see these are all different I mean I guess they're all different insects but like the hoverflies and I like the the sphinx moths like I just like that ability that they have to freak people out and just be there (laughs) you like the startling yeah well, we hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, if you want to catch us on some other podcasts, we do have an episode out with Bugs Need Heroes, uh, another entomology-themed podcast, uh, one that pairs cartooning and comics and illustration with entomology. Uh, we had a great time on that show. Uh, we'll post a link in today's show notes, uh, getting people to that episode, pushing some of our audience that way. They're relatively new. Uh, they've been around for a little while, but we got to talk with them about cockroaches and build Danny DeVito into a cockroach monster superhero. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. Yeah, thanks. Uh, if you guys are listening, so thanks for check having that us out. on. Yes, thank you for having us on. Uh, hopefully we meet again in the future. Uh, but they're at Bugs Need Heroes. You can find them on Spotify, all the different podcatchers. You can also find us on those platforms. We are arthro-pod.blogspot.com. That's where you can get most of our archive if you're looking for some of our older shows before we were the well-polished podcast machine that we are now. Uh, you can find those on our blog. You can find them on archive.org. That's where we host most of our show. You can search for arthro-pod there. But if you are listening to us on your favorite podcatcher app, that's where we're located. Spotify, Podcast Addict, uh, you name it. That's where we're at. Apple Podcasts, all those different good ones. If you could leave us a rating and review, it always helps the show. You can also find us on social media. We're on Twitter, X, at, uh, uh, we're Arthro underscore pod show. I'm at Bugman John. I'm at Jody Bugs Me, you know. I'm at mscavarla 36 and I'm also on blue sky at napoleonic ento so check him out there we will catch you here in a couple of weeks with an episode that mike is going to proctor focused on west nile yes west nile virus i didn't mean to to actually put you on the spot (laughs) sorry i had yellow fever stuck in my brain and i was like no it is certainly not that disease what's the other mosquito vector disease you got napoleonic things on your i did i did yeah we're gonna be talking about west nile um that haven't heard about it in a while. And there's some been some new research that I think is interesting that uh, will form the basis of the show. So look forward to that. We'll catch you then and there on Arthropod. It's time for our insect heroes to put away their nets and pheromone traps. Join us next time. Same bug time, same bug channel as the Arthropod gang make the world safe from poor insect podcasts. Until then, keep on bugging. I looked, they didn't really have any songs that were specifically where you could pull out the word wings and drop it into the episode. That's a shame. Um, hmm.